You are Locked On MLB Prospects, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. And here's your host, Aram Layton. Welcome back to Locked On MLB Prospects, your only daily podcast on the future stars of Major League Baseball. As always, I'm your host, Arm Layton. I'm a minor league play-by-play broadcaster as well as a prospect writer and more exciting things as the stove continues to heat up. We're going to be talking about the Francisco Lindor trade over to the Mets. This was a big deal. We knew Lindor was going to be on the move at some point soon. Of course, the Mets were going to be floated as an idea for a destination for just about anybody right now with Steve Cohen being the new owner and saying, I'm going to spend money, which is probably the antithesis of what we've heard from just about every other owner. So as a result, you're going to expect many good and high-profile players to be tied over to the Mets still. I don't know if the Mets were the favorite or the most likely, at least from what I had been hearing and what I had been seeing, to acquire Lindor, but they get it done and quickly. It wasn't one of those slow, dragged-out processes. It was just like you wake up one morning and boom, Lindor is a Met, and not just Lindor, also Carlos Carrasco, who is owed quite a bit of money over the next few years, but again, the Mets don't really care about that. Steve Cohen doesn't care about that, and he definitely bolsters the back end of that rotation and gives them some insurance if you know they're dealing with some more injury issues with Thor or Marcus Stroman isn't quite the pitcher that he was a couple years ago he didn't pitch this past year that's a little bit of a question mark too DeGrom not a question mark but even guys like Steven Matz and a lot of other moving parts where we just don't know how that rotation is going to come together ultimately gives them some nice insurance and a veteran arm that at times has been very, very solid and one of the more consistent arms in the game. Of course, 2019 was the one year where he wasn't great, but he was coming back from cancer. And the fact that that guy even got back on the field was is just an incredible story, seems like an incredible person and was one of the fan favorites in Cleveland. So Cleveland fans, I really do feel for you. We're going to talk about the return that you got. Of course, there was never going to be a return that was going to be justifiable for Francisco Lindor. And then you especially consider the circumstances being that they had no leverage, right? Everybody knew that Lindor was gone. Everybody knew that Cleveland wasn't going to pay Lindor. And he's coming off of a bit of a downer of a year. I don't think that sapped his value too much, but it definitely didn't help. And you factor in too that there's no guarantees that when you acquire Lindor that he's going to sign an extension with you. I'm sure that there was some sort of verbal contingency on that where the Mets weren't going to pull the trigger unless they had a really good feeling that Lindor was going to be coming over. But at the same time, they didn't give up enough to make it gut-wrenching if they do not keep Lindor. I would assume that the plan is that he will stay there and I think that the Mets are going to throw a lot of money at him and there's not very many teams that can afford to do that. So I would assume the plan is for him to remain in New York. I think that's the most likely scenario here. But still, it's a bit of a leap of faith. And when you look at the return for Mookie Betts, I think that's where you really got to gauge it here because that was a similar situation where Mookie was what I like to call a lame duck. Everybody knew the Red Sox weren't going to keep him. That leverage was kind of gone and his contract was up after that coming season. So the Red Sox knew they needed to cash in for what they could get right then. They got a pretty solid return given the circumstances. And I think a lot of people 
knocked that Mookie Betts return. But when you look at it now, it looks pretty darn good. They got Jeter Downs, who's one of my favorite prospects in baseball. I think he's a really well-rounded player that can hit you 25, 30 home runs and play shortstop, second base, third base. And they also, of course, got Alex Verdugo, who's a very, very good young outfielder and a fringe all-star when he has everything going for him, had a great year last year. And that's not a bad little core piece there. And they also got Connor Wong, who is not a bad piece at all and should be close to Major League Ready as a catcher slash utility guy that can hit for some power. And I talked about all of this in the episode where I looked back at the Mookie Betts trade, but also being able to unload that David Price contract was huge as well. I think when you look at this trade for the Indians, they do unload that Carlos Carrasco contract, which is not nearly the albatross that David Price's contract was, but it is progressively more expensive going up into 2023. So this year he's due $12 million. Next year he's due $12 million. Then in 2023, he's due $14 million. If he pitches at the level that he pitched this past year, then it's worth it for the Mets, right? He was very solid, a 2.91 ERA in 12 starts, 68 innings. He punched out 82. So I would argue that that's not a bad contract at all. I don't think it's even much of an argument. I think the, the case there is that just the Indians don't want to pay that contract. And also, I don't know if at 35 years old, he's going to be justifiably a $14 million player. That remains to be seen, but it's not a bad contract and good on the Mets to kind of get that thrown in there with them if they don't mind paying the money. All around, a, a very solid deal for the Mets. They really don't give up too much in terms of their future and the pieces that they have. Yes, they gave up some upside. Yes, they gave up some guys that they just selected in the draft. And when we look at the full package, if you may not have caught it, it's Ahmed Rosario, who has now played in the big leagues for a couple seasons now. Also, Andres Jimenez, who got his first taste of the big leagues last year and was very impressive uh, playing up the middle as well. Then some younger type of high upside, very volatile pieces when you look at Josh Wolf. And then Isaiah Green, I will get into those two guys as well. I had briefly touched on Isaiah Green in the past when I talked about some of the Mets' farm system. But overall, this is a light return. And for the obvious reasons that I discussed before, but there are some pieces that could ultimately help the Indians and two pieces that will plug in to their lineup right away in Rosario and Jimenez. Rosario is a hot and cold guy over the last two years, right? It seemed like he was finally putting it together in 2019 where he hit 15 home runs, was able to tap into a little bit more power, was able to hit for a little bit more consistency, but then took a step back this past year. The thing with Rosario too is even though he had that better season and that quote-unquote breakout season in 2019, he was still fairly just average at the plate. 100 WRC plus, OPS of 755, and the weird thing with him is he's an above average defender for sure, but the weird thing with him is he's in the top 10 percentile when it comes to sprint speed, maybe even better, probably top 8% when it comes to sprint speed, but he can't steal bases. He was thrown out, I think, 40% of the time when he tried to steal bags in 2019, and he didn't even bother in 2020. He only tried once and was thrown out, so he is not really a threat as a base stealer, so he doesn't use his speed that much. Sure, you'll get in the value of taking the extra base on a hit or being able to go from first to third, but not much value there as a base stealer. Jimenez, very similar with the offensive profile. I'd argue that Rosario has more power, probably a little bit more juice, but Jimenez is more consistent. Rosario doesn't walk. I mean, a 2.7% walk rate this past year is absurdly low. Even in 2019, it was at 4% and change. 
that's not great. Jimenez doesn't walk a ton either. He's usually around the 5 to 6% range, but he swipes bags. He plays better defense. So Rosario is an above average defender. Jimenez is a plus defender. And I think he has some more consistent bat to ball skills. I like his swing from the left side. And with that defensive ability that he offers, I don't want to compare Jimenez to Lindor whatsoever. They're not even close. But Lindor's defense had taken a step back the last couple years. Jimenez is a gold glove caliber defender. So I don't think that the Indians are losing much defensively, but that's not why you go get Lindor. That's not why you have the value in Lindor. It's not for his defense. Sure, he adds value, but that the fact that he's such a good offensive player and plays good defense is important. But still, I think that is worth noting, at least, right? You're not taking a huge hit at a premium defensive position. At least you are going to have a good defensive shortstop there. But this is a guy that's not going to hit nearly at the level that Francisco Lindor hit from years 2015 to 2019. Lindor, surprisingly downer of a year, but I think he was getting a little stale there, there in Cleveland. He knew his time was running out. I don't think he was too happy there, but finished the year with a 100 WRC+. And, you know, that's not really what we've come to expect from arguably the best shortstop in baseball, or at least a top three shortstop in baseball. But I expect him to kind of have a fire lit under him again now with a new scenery in New York with a loaded lineup. And, you know, you look at the peripherals in 2020, not much had changed in terms of his strikeout rate, walk rate, batted ball data. He was fine, and he's going to have a really big year, I think, this year with the Mets, and it's going to be a fun team to watch. So let's get into the return a little bit because while, again, it's not going to be a return that you're excited about or super thrilled about if you're an Indians fan, there are some interesting pieces still coming over. And let's talk about how that kind of slots into the future and slides into the system and what the Indians plan might be because they do have a lot of middle infielders. And it was kind of interesting that they got two more because yes, it's good to have the two guys that plug in to the lineup right now because when you look at the rest of the system Tyler Freeman not quite ready yet he should be ready at some point at by the end of this year or, or by early 2022 at best then you look at Brian Rocchio he's nowhere near ready then you look at Gabriel Arias he's not looking like a true shortstop defensively he's probably going to move to second base maybe third if the bat picks up there that's what I think I just don't see the defense there sticking and he's not quite ready for the major league level he needs another year or so as well and that's probably being generous Carson Tucker nowhere near ready either so when you look at most of the middle infield it was not really they didn't really have any players that were close to ready other than I would argue Owen Miller who is probably the closest to being ready, came over in that trade from the Padres, and still he needs a little bit more time, but I love his offensive profile. He's just very consistent. Doesn't have a single tool that jumps off the page, but I don't think it would be insane to say that Owen Miller could potentially be a better offensive option at second base in the long term than Ahmed Rosario, depending on how convinced you were by the 2019 metrics that were very, very positive for Rosario. I think this was an opportunity for the Indians. They probably didn't need two shortstops in this deal, but they saw an opportunity to buy low. I was talking about this with Jeff from Locked on Indians, and he said the Indians always love an opportunity to buy low. And if they identify the player as that type of candidate to bounce back, and is still young, as Rosario is still only 25 years old, then this could end up being a really good value piece there for them because they already got Jimenez, who is probably one of the best prospects in the Mets system, even though he's on the brink of graduating. That rookie year that he had in 2020 was very impressive on a big stage, 
and was incredibly young and just 20 years old to be playing at that stage. The defense was great. The offense was surprisingly better than I had anticipated. When you look at Rosario's 2019 like baseball savant numbers, for example, because this kind of shows the story of a guy that was able to put it together and Mets fans and I think the Mets front office kind of thought that they had something here at shortstop with Rosario. He was in the 91st percentile in expected batting average. He was in the 94th percentile in sprint speed too, which was interesting because that's where it's just shocking that he's not able to steal bags. He was in the better half of the league in exit velocity and in the better half of the league in hard hit percentage. Both of those are interesting to me because he is not a guy that really smokes the ball, but he was hitting the ball very hard in 2019. That regressed a bit in 2020, which was surprising as well because you figure a guy has a great year as a 24-year-old. He's got to be continuing to progress as a 25-year-old because he had already had a taste of the big leagues before that 2019 season. So it wasn't like this sophomore slump that we saw this past year. It seemed like he finally just had that breakthrough in 2019. But then you look at 2020, 15th percentile in exit velocity. And, you know, Rosario is never going to be a guy that's going to be at the top of the league and when it comes to hitting the ball hard, but he was in the better half of the league in 2019. And then all of a sudden he's in the bottom 15%. Of course, as you struggle, you're not going to be hitting the ball as hard. That goes without being said. And it's more expected though to see the dramatic drop in barrel percentage because you're not going to be barreling as frequently. But for the batted ball data, and I know they go hand in hand, but still to have that drastic of a drop off in exit velocity is pretty alarming. You just wonder what went wrong with him. I'd probably have to watch more video and see if there were some changes with the swing mechanics, because when you look at the peripherals, he didn't really change much in terms of his chase percentage or his approach. He walked a little bit less, as I said earlier, which was still it's like you walked in the bottom 5% instead now in 2020 or in the bottom 2%. The whiff rate was still pretty solid. He was still in the better half of the league in that regard too. So it's a very curious situation there. And maybe when you when the Indians looked at the peripherals and looked at the video, they said, I think this was an outlier of a shortened season. It was only 143 at-bats. I think he's going to be more like that 2019 form. If that's the case, then they bought low on a guy that's still only 25 years old, is a middle infielder, really a shortstop, and a solid defensive shortstop at that. I only relegate him to second because Jimenez is a gold glove caliber shortstop, but I guess that instantly plugs in their middle of the infield there with Rosario and Jimenez. My issue with this trade though, when you look at how it helps the Indians, if they even try to pretend that they're trying to win now, is that they were one of the worst offensive outfields in all of baseball. That was no secret. And now, you know, There was never going to be a replacement of Lindor offensively, but still, now you have two incredibly light-hitting middle infielders, and all of your pop now is coming from third base, essentially, which is pretty crazy, and I just don't see how the Indians are anywhere outside of the bottom 10 in the league, maybe even the bottom 5, when it comes to offensive statistics and especially power statistics. When I look at the deal, I kind of wonder why they were not able to get J.D. Davis in this deal as well. I know he's arbitration eligible, and it might have been financially driven, or they might have just wanted more upside, assuming that Rosario has more upside than J.D. Davis. But if you're saying that you're trying to win now, Davis makes sense because you have Nolan Jones coming up soon. And I think there's a lot of hope that Nolan Jones will be able to contribute, and especially if the Indians ultimately end up getting rid of of Jose Ramirez, which it seems like the clock's starting to tick on him as well now too. 
you wonder why they wouldn't go for a guy like JD who would satisfy a lot of their offensive woes. I know they're counting on Nolan Jones to be able to come up in the next year, maybe even at some point this season and contribute. But beyond this year, he cannot hit left-handed pitching. That's no secret. He absolutely demolishes right-handed pitching. And you look at JD Davis, he can hit right-handed pitching decently, but he is a left-handed masher. He's kind of positionless, plays third base, can play the corner outfield, but that would help them immensely. And you have that platoon, takes the pressure off of Jones, would help you in the short term to have a good offensive profile where you have a combination of Jones and Davis who are would be one of the better platoons in baseball. And I think at this point, you have to kind of consider the fact that Jones will not be able to hit lefties, has never hit over a 200 clip against lefties. That's just an idea I wanted to float, but I don't blame the Indians for going for the upside. That's assuming, again, that they are looking long-term. If they're saying they're trying to be competitive next year, then I'm going to make that J.D. Davis point. If they are truly building for the future, which I think they are, and whatever they say is just another story, then that's why they went for the upside here. And I'm okay with that because Rosario, again, only 25 years old and a piece that can continue to get better. And Jimenez is a very solid piece and to me is the centerpiece in this deal. When you look at the tertiary and the fourth piece in this deal with Josh Wolf and Isaiah Green. I'm going to talk about their upside. They're incredibly volatile, but do have a lot of upside. I'm going to talk about those two guys in a moment here, but first a word from our sponsors. A reminder that this episode is brought to you by betonline.ag, the only betting site that we trust. We got the NFL postseason starting tomorrow. The playoffs start tomorrow. Got some good games lined up. And right now, if you go to betonline.ag and use the promo code Locked On, it's one word, Locked On, you'll get a 50% welcome bonus. And that's probably the best offer you're going to get from any of our sponsors right now. You deposit $100, you get an extra $50 free to wager on anything right now, right? We got the NBA started back up. We got the college football playoff that is ready to go very soon on Monday. We got the NFL postseason. We got baseball on the horizon you can play some mlb future bets i don't think you're going to be betting on the indians to win the world series maybe the mets could still get some pretty good odds there and i don't think they're done making moves and again you go to betonline.ag and use the promo code locked on 50 welcome bonus it's the only place we trust bet online your online sports book experts also this episode is brought to you by rockauto.com why pay 20 30 50 percent more for auto parts from a chain store or a car dealership when you can just go to rockauto.com and use their easy to navigate website to find whatever car part you need any car make or model they'll ship it straight to your door rockauto.com is a family-owned business that's been serving auto parts customers online for over 20 years they look out for you they are trying to get you the best prices the mechanics and the chain stores and the dealerships they're not looking out for you the same way that rockauto.com is and the website is just so much easier to navigate and to find whatever you may need and if you go to rockauto.com please let them know that locked on sent you in the how did you hear about us section amazing selection reliably low prices all the parts your car will ever need rockauto.com so let's get right back into it with the final two pieces in this deal i'll start with josh wolf because wolf to me is the third most valuable piece in this trade and when you look at wolf you see second round pick okay they just traded for a second round pick but wolf really was a first round pick he got first round money with a 2.15 million dollar signing bonus back in 2019 
And that really is the value there where you're getting out of Wolf. That's a first-round player. And he is a first-round player for good reason. He opened up eyes big time when he hit 97 miles per hour in his senior season of high school. He shows a good feel for a curveball that already flashes plus. And there's a chance that he can find that third pitch with the changeup. He's very raw, still only 20 years old, 6'3", 170 pounds. But he made some adjustments to his mechanics that I think have really helped him to consistently throw strikes and to consistently find that secondary stuff. He dropped his arm slot a little bit, which he's able to get away with as a 6'3 guy. And I think it's given him more of an ability to repeat that arm slot, repeat the release point and tunnel better. And by tunneling, I mean, you got to throw all of your pitches from the same arm slot. So finding that arm slot that works across the board is really important because if you drop your arm for your changeup or drop your arm for the curveball, a good hitter is going to pick up on that immediately. And that is an easy tip to your pitch. So that is huge for Wolf to be able to improve that. And the reports were that he really impressed in his two outings in the Gulf Coast League. I like him overall. I I think that he has a high upside and he has a high floor in some regards as a reliever just because of the fact that he already has that two pitch mix of the fastball and the curveball that both flash plus and the fastball that you assume he's coming out of the bullpen that's going to be upper 90s no problem. The question just is will he be a starter? He comes with some imminent reliever risk but I would argue that Josh Wolf with a good start to this coming season could crack the top 10 Right now, he's right around the 9 to 11 range, maybe 12 in my top prospects for the Indians, but a good shot to solidify himself inside the top 10 with a good start to this year. And there's a good chance I might even put him in my top 10 as I continue to do these rankings that will be ready to go in the next few weeks. But essentially for the Indians, they just went and traded for a first round talent that has hardly played since he was drafted in 2019 in the limited action that we've seen him. He looked good and looked like a first-round talent. So that's a high upside piece. Volatile, sure, but in a trade where you're not going to get blue-chip prospects and you know you have to choose between those higher floor guys that just you can't dream on as much that you know aren't going to make a major, major impact even if they reach their ceilings versus the more volatile guys that could end up salvaging some good value out of the deal if they pan out. That was probably the right choice for the Indians here. I think you had to do that, and it gives an opportunity for their system to take a major jump with Wolf being able to have the ability and the caliber stuff that if he puts together a good season, not only could he get into that top 10, but I think with a good year and good strikeout numbers and at least respectable command, then you're looking at a guy that could be a top 100 prospect if he puts it together. So definitely a good upside piece here as the third piece of the deal. And as for the fourth piece, no slouch either. A guy that I did like out of the draft, didn't have a ton on him. And I think that was part of the reason why we didn't see him go higher in the draft or earlier, so to speak, because he was selected as a supplemental second round pick. But I think he was more polished than a lot of people made him out to be. When you look at high school outfielders without a huge track record that kind of jump onto the scene, there's going to be a lot of questions around him, and that's fair. But Green is a plus runner on the fringe of double plus runner. He has no doubt uh, the ability to stay in center field. I think he's definitely going to stay out there in center field. When I look at his swing, he's a skinny-ish guy, 6'1", 180, but long limbs. And typically those profile guys tend to struggle with their body control and tend to cast their arms out, get a little bit longer with their swing. 
Green shows to me an above average hit tool, especially for his age as a high schooler and especially for a third round high schooler, I guess competitive round, second round high schooler, still really well-rounded and pretty polished given the circumstances. I was surprised that he fell that far and I like him as a pickup here in this deal as well. I like him as a prospect. I'd mentioned him in a breakdown I did of the Mets system in the past. I think he has really good raw tools Again, the almost double-plus runner, above-average hit tool. Typically, it's one or the other. The power is going to be the question, right? He's 6'1", 180, and does does have the body control, but still could probably engage the lower half a little bit better to get some more leverage on that swing. I think that there's a chance to have average power there, and that's going to be more than enough when you're considering the fact that he's a center fielder with an above-average hit tool and a fringe double-plus runner. You only need 15 to 20 home run power to get the value there. I've seen some comps to Michael Brantley. It's just too early to make comps like that, but I think if everything works out for him, he's a left-handed bat, he's athletic, he can run, he can hit you for at least a little bit of power. And again, that's just a really hard thing to project right now for him because he's 19 years old. He could still grow. His frame could widen and he could fill out more and he could make some changes to his swing, whatever it is to generate more leverage. There's just so many moving parts when you have a high schooler like this, but I like the polish and to have that kind of polish for a guy that's toolsy like he is and with the defensive ability in center field, a good piece and kind of balances out the system here with not that many outfielders outside of George Valera at the top of the system and not that many high upside outfielders outside of George Valera in that system. I like it. He's probably the second best outfield prospect now in the entire Indians farm system. So that is a good addition, helps balance out the system, and has some upside there. I like him more than P.D. Halpin. I like him more than Daniel Johnson, who's already older, and you already know what you're getting there with him. P.D. Halpin's probably a more fair comparison as a six foot 180 outfielder as well that bats from the left side. I think that Isaiah Green is much more polished and has a better chance to reach higher heights and reach his ceiling and also just has a higher ceiling as well. I hope you enjoyed this breakdown of the trade. I know that if you're an Indian fan, you probably weren't going to enjoy the breakdown no matter what, but I hope it was insightful for you. And I think that given the circumstances, it's not a bad deal at all. Also, just wanted to plug this in there because I think Indians fans deserve something to feel good about. Logan Allen, who I think is getting slept on like crazy, that guy should be in the top 15, maybe even top 12 prospects in the system. I'm really high on Logan Allen as a potential starter, worst case scenario, impact reliever. So that's my little, it's okay, Indians fans. There's some guys to feel good about. I like Logan Allen. Just wanted to give you that little tidbit to make you feel a little good at the end of this, but I know it's tough. I grew up a Marlins fan and a lot of my, all of my favorite players as a kid got traded away. So I know the feeling. The Indians still have some quality pitching headlined by Shane Bieber and Tristan McKenzie. Still some interesting pieces in that system as well that could be knocking on the door in the next couple years. It's going to be a weird season and definitely an offensively deficient season, but the Indians should still find a way to be somewhat competitive. And again, I hope you enjoyed this breakdown of the trade and I look forward to talking prospects with you tomorrow. We're going to be doing an interview actually with Joe Nahas of the Cubs, a really interesting story with Joe, an undrafted free agent that was signed for a record deal, a hundred record deal, make it sound like he's a musician, a record signing bonus of $125,000 as an undrafted free agent. That's the maximum the Cubs gave him that deal after he tore up 
up the Cape multiple months after the draft. So a very cool story there and a very quality pitching prospect that I think a lot of Cubs fans and people in general are going to start to pay attention to in the near future. Thank you for listening and I'll talk to you tomorrow.